Hello and welcome to A Future Made. I'm Anna Pajajski, a material scientist and writer. And I'm Robbie Armstrong, a reporter and journalist. Together, we're bringing you A Future Made, a podcast by Heriot Watt University. In the series, we find out how pioneering research at Heriot Watt in the fields of science, business, psychology, technology, design, and engineering is helping to change the future, solve the problems of today, and make an impact on the global stage. In this episode, we're talking about harnessing the power of data to build a better world for tomorrow. We'll hear about how simulation models are giving solutions for seemingly unsolvable problems, from online delivery slots to refugee crises. We're also going to take a look at big data, but Anna, I am going to admit that I can barely pronounce qualitative and quantitative, let alone define them. So what do we actually mean when we use these words in the context of data collection? Right, absolutely. So these two categories of different types of data that you mentioned, quantitative is the one to do with numbers. So that could be anything from geolocation to size of population. Qualitative is the wordy stuff. It could be people's opinions or other human responses to stuff. Right, that makes sense. So data, I don't tend to really think about it much unless it hits the headlines. So Cambridge Analytica scandal was a big example where I was reflecting on it. ChatGBT recently, I was thinking a lot about AI and data. But the more I think about it, the more I realise it's fundamental to every aspect of our lives. So everything from healthcare, to the bank loans we receive, to the people we match with on dating apps, it intersects with quotidian aspects of existence in quite unusual and unexpected ways. And it just blows my mind the more I actually think about that. Yeah, me too. It's kind of inescapable these days, isn't it? Um, It always reminds me of that phrase that you hear on like cop dramas in the forensics team where they say that every contact leaves a trace Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like everything we do in the modern world leaves some kind of data trace it's kind of odd to think that our data has value and other people make money off of our data but it's not us as individuals whose data is especially valuable but it's as a collective so when we have large amounts of data or in other words big data you know google maps can tell us how to get from a to b extremely accurately right now based on the traffic conditions using the data that's coming off all of the other users health data as well being used to drive you know like local and even national policy change all of that stuff at a population level starts to become really useful and sometimes really financially valuable as well. Right, so we're, we're going to hear from Dr. Krista Serrell first, and she's an assistant professor in operations management and logistics. She's a member of the university's Centre for Sustainable Road Freight and the Centre for Logistics and Sustainability. But her research interests, they're about logistics, sustainability, behaviour modelling, using computer simulation modelling and data analytic techniques. And she's really interested in how we can use this data to make better decisions, improve the world we live in, and solve problems in an innovative, ethical, and sustainable way too. Krista prefers working with quantitative data rather than qualitative data. And here she is explaining why. Ooh, that's interesting to me. Okay, I'm excited. The reason why I prefer quantitative data and working with quantitative data rather than qualitative data is um, it doesn't talk back. 
right? We know exactly what we have in front of us. It's black and white. It's easy to work with. Um, there's no hidden things behind it. So we often use big data in our research uh, within the field of logistics, transportation, you know, looking at how we can incorporate it in energy usage and freight. And this is crucial for us looking towards the future of freight, what it's going to look like when we consider things like decarbonization. Often the problem with that is that we might not have all the data available to us to use. On the face of it, I would agree with Krista. Numbers don't lie. Or like, you wouldn't think that they could lie. But the data that you gather with numbers still at some on some level subject to error you might be able to get a number out of you know let's say a geolocation but that geolocation isn't 1000% accurate right you would always have like a margin for error and so i think it's a little bit we need to be a bit careful when we say that quantitative data is sort of more trustworthy because that data only exists because scientists are gathering it and so what you're then saying is that these scientists are 100% trustworthy. And we know from history that that isn't always the case. Yeah, because every scientist is a human and every yeah. human is subject to bias, even if they use the scientific method. You know, there is inherent bias in the decisions we make that we're not aware of. That's sort of the nature of bias is that it is in some ways in our subconscious, right? Exactly. And the questions that we as like fallible humans choose to ask as part of the scientific method, that inherently brings in bias, like you say. So we have to be a little bit careful, although I guess what Krista is saying is that comparing quantitative to qualitative, I think it is definitely true to say that the quantitative stuff feels more trustworthy. I can, I can believe that. So, I mean, we often work with global complex system that we need to understand. And in order to understand those systems, we need to look at the data. And data is then often missing you know, with companies having perhaps their own silo data. But, um, and you understand why, because it's a commodity. But looking at the global system, uh, we don't have all the data put together, all the different parts, and we need to figure out, you know, we need to impute the data, we need to create the data. When we actually have the data and we can understand the bigger system, um, this is actually crucially important for things like climate change, mitigating it and allowing to change people's behavior. You know, we don't have a long timescale to work with. We have to accelerate the change. And actually understanding all of the missing data bits allows us to understand how people behave, why they behave. It also allows us to actually understand how the systems would work best. Where should we have refueling stations for hydrogen? Or where should we put static chargers for electric vehicles? We don't have years to actually roll this out and see how it organically grows. We need to understand it within a short time frame. We touched on simulation models and we've discussed it at length in a previous episode, but I think it's worth revisiting them again in the context of this discussion because what Krista sees them as is a form of virtual reality. And she actually makes quite an interesting comparison with one of the most popular video games of all time. It's a quite a fun thing creating a simulation model because you get different levels of it. You know, thinking of whether an agent should be an individual, whether an agent should be a family, um, what is the scale that you're working with? And you need to find out which one you pick for the model to be most effective as well. It's like when you play Sims, you know, and you can decide what a Sim should be. 
A sim or an agent can be either a person, it can be a vehicle, it can be a refueling station. So often we build these models in this virtual world where we can play out different scenarios. We can test, for example, how the future would look like with a certain portion of hydrogen for freight and a certain portion of battery electric vehicles or an electric road system. Um, we can play it out with people's behavior. So some models might look at freight and logistics. Other models might actually start looking at how people might react towards something, how it can affect their behavior. We did a model about water conservation, looking at the policies that governments should employ and which policies the people react to best. And it's something we can simulate over and over again and test and see the results. That doesn't have to play out in reality and then we can inform government on those policies. And I think the crucial point about that type of research is that those simulations that they can run can happen extremely quickly, right? Because it's computers doing these calculations. So like Krista says, we don't need to wait for like real time to pass before we do one test of the experiment. We can do, I don't know, tens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of playing out different scenarios and have a statistical certainty about the result. So it's like Age of Empires or like Tamagotchis where you like blink and then 80 years have passed or 100 <laughs> years have passed. <laughs> it's exactly like Tamagotchis, yeah. That's the level I'm at. <laughs> Give me an analogy about, you know, a video game or a toy and I might have a chance <laughs> of getting it. So our next academic, Dr. Adam Gripton, He's an assistant professor in the Centre for Sustainable Road Freight as well, and he lectures in green logistics and big data. So he works with simulated digital twins of the real world to quantify the effects of green interventions in systems. So when we're talking about simulation modelling, um, we are very much working in a data-driven environment. And the reason for that is because we need to be able to replicate the system as far as possible, the way it works, the dynamics behind the system, uh, and all the essential qualities of the sort of baseline model of that system, because then that will give us a, a better idea of what the effect of green logistics interventions will be on that system. So if we've got a good, robust, solid understanding of the way that logistics work in either a, an urban area or for interurban logistics as well, then we can look at things like for example, in urban areas, we can look at local policies regarding traffic management. We can look at urban consolidation of logistics. We can look at electric charging hubs. We can look at cargo bikes, seeing if it's, if it's financially viable, seeing how we make it financially viable in terms of those cost models. Using this data to improve online deliveries, like we we're talking about while meeting environmental goals, that is one of Adam's main research interests. We need data about where the current logistics operations are, what journeys are currently done. We need an idea of where the demand is. The data about the demand and the current logistics operations will improve the fidelity of that system to a point where we know that we are simulating something close to the real world. If you were to take this particular interesting bit of highway or motorway and, and, and you were to, to, to trial an electric road system along this particular stretch, then that would, that would be of high impact because we know that, that the demand is there, we know that we know of those logistics journeys that already happen. Um, and actually being able to model in a very abstract sense 
um, for the whole UK or for the whole of any other geographical area, where that demand might come from for freight movements, again, both within urban areas and interurban operations, is a really important part of what we do at the centre. Yeah, that actually rings true for me. When I get my grocery shop delivered every week, I choose a cheaper time slot that is quite a long time slot. I think it's four hours. And then on the day, they text me to say within that four hours, the one hour window that it will actually come, which I think is a genius solution because it gives you a, a bit of control. But if you're somebody like me who works from home and it actually doesn't matter exactly what time they come, then they can optimize their logistics within that time constraint that is convenient for the customer. I think it's a really good idea. There's an awful lot of miles wasted through returns, through missed deliveries, through what sort of while you were out, so all of which need to be resolved, but also through customers choosing time windows in in a way that doesn't necessarily produce the most efficient logistics patterns. So if you relax some of those time windows, then you'll get much more efficient operations. You'll get less vehicles on the road because each vehicle will be able to be utilized that much more. Technological advances have have helped make logistics a more efficient operation and therefore a greener operation. We can pretty much assume that there's an alignment between the total number of kilometers driven in in any given operation and costs. So there's a sort of win-win there for for the delivery companies because they get to choose a more efficient operation in terms of their driver's costs, in terms of their fuel costs, but the overall environment benefits as well because you get less wasted miles for for the same amount of uh, deliveries. We'll be back with more stories from Harriet Watts Centre for Logistics and Sustainability in just a moment. But first, we're going to hear from a Harriet Watt graduate about how being at the university is giving them new and amazing opportunities out there in the big bad real world. Hi, my name is Dr. Zainab Habboubi. I'm from Iraq and my current job is a senior data analyst and I work in the area of risk strategy and people. The first day when I arrived in Edinburgh, it was very rainy and was foggy and very dark, but I was so excited. And even the taxi driver, he was like, is this your first time in Edinburgh? And I was like, no, this is my first time outside of Iraq at all. I was like, no, I love it. I was really excited. I was like, look, everything is so hopeful for me. The job that I found like myself to fit in is as a data analyst because I know how to analyze large data set and from learning how to code or how to program that I learned from Harriet Watt University, I thought that would be a good set of skills that I could use. My company offered me a senior data analyst. I like my manager, I like my team. In Harriet Watt University, I improved my skills in data science and I was helped by my colleagues and the staff. Yeah, it is a very fulfilling role for me. If you want to find out more about studying petroleum engineering, data science, or any subject at Harriet Watt University, you can find out more on the website at www.hw.ac.uk. 
You're listening to A Future Made, a podcast from Heriot Watt University with Anna Pajajski and Robbie Armstrong. So far, we've been hearing from doctors Chris DeSero and Adam Gripton. Coming up, why companies don't share useful data and how it can be harnessed to help solve intractable problems. Plus, a Heriot Watt project in the UK's most popular national park. So as I mentioned, Adam and his team encounter problems when it comes to collecting data on deliveries from big companies. And this hinders the potential of something called, wait for it, urban delivery horizontal collaboration. What we need to do is find a way, practically, of getting what might be rival companies to collaborate with each other to reduce emissions, to reduce wasted miles over the whole system in a way that doesn't compromise their data security. One of the biggest issues that we found within the centre, within modelling these systems, is that often you can't get the data that's necessary to model these operations to start with because of the fear with respect to data security. In order to model from a whole system perspective, you need data from pretty much every major delivery company that's operating in that area. And here's a really fundamental point to this. All of those delivery companies themselves, by definition, will have optimised their own operations because they're trying to keep their bottom line down. But they won't have optimised with respect to the whole system. They won't have optimised between each other in a way that keeps overall emissions down. That's so interesting. I hadn't appreciated the value of the data that the delivery companies hold of how they do it, who they, you know, not who their customers are. Well, I guess who their customers are, but the kind of the broader patterns. I hadn't considered that even that data is valuable. So there is this whole, I guess, shadow world in which there's, you know, heaps and heaps of data that isn't actually being used to benefit, in this case, the smooth running of our society, our roads, our logistic systems. And I guess this is what Krista is touching upon as well, is that you can distinguish between data that's used for companies and the data that, you know, academics and researchers need in order to make sort of or propose fundamental changes to, you know, make all of our lives better. Make all of our lives better. And also, like, help out these companies by saving them even more money. That's the irony is, like, they're keeping the data under lock and key because they're trying to save money. But what these academics are trying to do, out of the goodness of their hearts, <laughs> is, uh, well, also to save the planet, but primarily out of the goodness of their hearts, uh, to, like, help them save even more money. So a little sidebar here. I thought we would touch upon the Internet of Things because it asks questions of the benefits and drawbacks of data collection. And as well as that, it is one of Adam's all-time favourite bugbears. So here he has given a pithy sum up of his thoughts on the subject. If there is a link in the chain that you can take out completely in terms of your data security, then you probably should. And having too much connected devices for me seems seems... A potentially, unless there's a really good case for making something into a connected device, I think we should always be wary of such things because it's just introducing another link in the chain that can go wrong. All of these technologies work when humans behave in a predictable or a predictably unpredictable way, right? Like, it, but it's based on routine and learning and kind of AI. But we know that humans are 
not predictable. And so these things are great, like in the normal status quo times, but it they represent like inconvenience when we behave in a very human way, when we when we change our routines or when we want different things. And this is where our next researcher comes in, Dr. Jyoti Mantani, because she's looking at qualitative data. She's a research associate at the Centre for Logistics and Sustainability, and her interests lie in travel data, public behaviour, and the public's views towards sustainable transport. So she's trying to gather information on public attitudes that they can then use to shape policy decisions. So at the moment, she's working with the Lake District National Park, and the project is trying to find sustainable transport solutions in what is England's largest national parks. So she came to Harriet Watt, having done qualitative research aimed at improving public transport in Delhi. So it's a massive change to go from such a concentrated urban population to such a rural population, but each has its own particular problems to be solved. The transportation-related issues in the national park, especially in Lake District, uh, widely recognised problem. Like, there's very intensive traffic congestions over there, and that creates the environmental burden, not only for the local population, but also for the ecosystem. So, in response to these serious problems, national park authorities are keen to develop the sustainable transportation in the national park by proposing various policy initiatives. Our research team at Herit Ward intend to elicitate their views or the opinions or the experience of the local public towards the sustainable transportation in the national park through public consultation research work. And for this, we have used a gamification approach. Let's listen to why they work with qualitative data. So when we talk about the uh, public opinions or views, it's not about the numbers, right? So uh, if we are talking about their opinions and experience, we should go ahead with the qualitative research. Qualitative research is nothing but to capture the insights of people's feelings and thoughts, which cannot be like described in numbers, right? So uh, this is like giving a voice to the live experience or offering the researchers to get more deep into the topic by getting the individual's experiences. Here's a little bit more on the novel approach that they employ. We have proposed an alternative approach to the conventional focus group discussion, right? So using gamification to facilitate structured discussion around the topic. It's a use of game design element in non-game context to capture the thoughts, feelings and experience of people. In this approach, we engage the people and look at what they are motivated and interested in by giving them that playful environment. So knowingly and unknowingly, they provide their feedback, they provide their experience, they provide their thoughts and opinions uh, in the uh, discussion, group discussion. And that really matters to a researcher. They use a variety of games, but the one that they focus on is a role play card game and the participants act as the policy makers. So they're given cards that have different policy measures that they can implement. We learned about simulations earlier using like quantitative data and like when it comes to transport and this is like the qualitative equivalent. It It's a simulated scenario that they're creating and what they're basically saying is like, here you go, local public, you're in charge now. If you were in power, what would you want to see? And then one big challenge I'm sure for the researchers is to take those discussions, which are presumably recorded, 
you know, transcribe them and then look for patterns. So we're going to look back to our previous academics and I wanted to discuss this paradox that I think exists at the heart of modern life. I was keen to hear their thoughts on the contradictory idea that we are more connected than ever before, but also because of modern technology and modern existence, we feel more separated, more atomized, more individualized as well. And I think this sort of rise of individualism has been coupled with this new technology. So it's sort of morphed into this strange world where we are individual and, you know, have lots of agency, but also are anonymized data points written in code at the same time. The very kind of like Western canon of story is all based on the ego, right? And the hero's journey. The way that we are taught from childhood to like think of ourselves as the hero of our own story makes us very individualistic. Different cultures and different ideas around taking a more collective approach may produce a kind of different sort of technological outcome. And it's interesting that when technology comes into it, our sense of individualism, as you say, is challenged, right? Because we are just like a series of data points floating in the internet somewhere. <laughs> and we are not the kind of precious snowflake that we believe ourselves to be. Well, we are both, actually. I think that's the point. We're non-dualistic, to take another Eastern philosophical concept, which seems like we've we've never really fully adapted that idea into Western society, that things can be one thing and the other at the same time. They can be two contrasting and contradictory notions that exist within one whole. So they're both and neither. I really like that idea. But I can't take credit for the hot take. I mean, it's Krista who gave her thoughts on how this contradiction intersects with the world of big data. Yeah, I mean, it is quite an irony that, you know, we as individuals living in this world where data is collected from us every second of every day, we just become a number in a bigger system um, and we're completely anonymized. But the thing that the system can pick out is patterns, right? So... When we don't have the data and we create simulation models to get the data, we model it from a bottom-up approach. So we model it at an individual level. And suddenly, for each individual, we now start giving them characteristics. We give them an age, a gender, uh, income level, education level. And because of that, they may react and behave in certain ways. And we capture that. And because of those individual behavior, the system give us this large-scale emergence. And that's truly when we see this behavioral and the complete system occurring. Adam says that this idea is relevant in the world of data and deliveries too. We're all a lot more connected than we used to be, but we're all a lot less connected than we used to be because it dissuades people from actually talking to each other in, in, in a helpful way. Now, th this is probably just as true of logistics as it is from the wider world. We know that as things have progressed over the last 20 years onto a, an online delivery paradigm, um, in particular since the pandemic years, there, there's been a massive spike in in the popularity of online delivery. And as a result, because there's so much competition in the online delivery space, people want things now. They want things yesterday. And actually, I was just this morning, I was reading about a, a news article that said that the 10 minute deliveries might, might start becoming the norm and sort of asking the question, how soon is too soon in terms of getting your delivery? Is that even a realistic, sustainable time window to actually expect? Or are we just condemning ourselves to that becoming the norm and not actually thinking about what that's going to do to the local logistics systems or to our environmental goals? 
the use of this data to model these different scenarios is incredibly important because it also tells us at what cost, and this is you know how Adam ends that, is what is the environmental cost to trying to meet that need or meet that want of having a 10-minute delivery time for any item that you could possibly want? I would guess probably high or at least you know significant. And so that data then has the potential to be used in order to save us from ourselves, <laughs> potentially in this example and kind of benefit society. Constantly at different stages in human evolution, we have been told that the advance of technology is for the benefit of us all. And time and time again, that has not been the case. And it goes all the way back to the transition from people as hunter-gatherers to, you know, agrarian society into industrialized society. And now we've moved into the post-industrial technologically data-driven world. And again, we're being told that this will help all of our lives. And you can listen to these tech barons say that we just need to get to this emergence of AI and then none of us are going to have to do any work because everything will be automated. We'll have the robotic technology. We'll have the artificial intelligence and we'll all just be luxuriating on our sunbeds and drinking mojitos. It's never happened before. So why would this be any different unless the people who own the means of, you know, power seed that. It just seems like it is a cyclical nature of human existence and technological advances. And thank you for coming to my TED Talk. It was a very good TED Talk. I loved it. Are you scared of big data? Do you welcome it? Does it depend on the context? Definitely depends on the context. That question reminded me of um, a quote that I recently learned that was from Marie Curie and she said of her newly discovered radioactive materials, nothing is to be feared, it is only to be understood. I think I take that approach with big data. I understand bits of it and the bits that I understand I can see the benefits of, but I can also see some dangers on the horizon as well as we've discussed. So I wouldn't say I was scared of big data. I'm wary of it, like I would be a lion in a cage. Oh. <laughs> okay, well, um, I don't have anything as profound to say about that, so I'm just going to let Krista talk about the need to overcome this fear. People are often scared of data and their own data, and, and people don't necessarily know what happens to their own data. Um, but we have to get, as a population, we need to get data smart, you know, because it's all around you. It's within every type of job you get. Um, and the better we understand data and how to ideally use data, you know, it can really better our lives um, in every instance, every day, but also help us to help others. Um, and, and that's really where data can be really powerful. Definitely. I think some of the origin of the fear comes from concerns around consent, which we haven't yet touched on, but, you know, consent with data is a really key point. There remains a question for me in terms of how we as individuals and society can consent to our data being used in ways that it is currently now, but also, you know, that data then exists forever. I guess that's the scary thing is it's, we feel out of control because we don't know for sure what's going to happen next. Yeah. 
But you know, the, the, that's why I guess academia is so important to troubleshoot these problems. We're actually thinking about the fundamental nature of technology and how we can make sure that it works in the interests of everyone. Thanks for listening to A Future Made. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss an episode. Just search for A Future Made. Or you can head over to Harriet Watt University's website at hw.ac.uk.